You may be seated. The scripture reading for today is from Exodus chapter 12. If you want to follow along and need a Bible, please use the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, and verses 21 through 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On this, that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and where I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and sl slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, as we come now to your word, pray that you would teach us, speak your truth to us in it, that you would help us sinners to grow to know you more. 
and that you would be with me a sinner as I seek to preach it. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we do this every couple weeks because I know that people come and go, but to orient us, we're preaching through the book of Exodus, and Israel's been in slavery for 400 years. God calls Moses, um, and Moses, after wandering in the desert for decades, finally comes back. There's some false starts and fumbling around a little bit, but finally, um, the Lord begins to move to bring out Israel, and there's these plagues that come on Egypt in God's judgment, and after every plague, Pharaoh continues to be hard, and he says, no, we're not going to let them go, and another plague comes, and finally, at the end of our reading last week, we have the threatening of this final plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn. And after that, God says, Pharaoh will be utterly beaten and let Israel go. And I know that last plague is hard for us, and I said this last time too, but hold on one more week and we're going to talk about some of the hardness of it and of the plagues in general next week. But before that last plague comes, God commands Israel to hold this special holiday of the Passover. And I don't even know that holiday is the right word for it. It is a holiday in the old sense that you would celebrate it every year, Um, but I think we think of holidays as kind of holly jolly times, and the Passover was in many ways um, kind of grim, even though there was also a sense of celebration. So here's what I want us to do this morning as we hear about this Passover. First, I want us to talk about it just in terms of the original event and what was happening there in that first Passover. And then I want us to talk about the idea that the Passover becomes this annual celebration and that this text is also aimed at calling us to remember it. So talking about it in itself and then talking about it as a remembrance. And just a note about that as we dive in, we only read parts of Exodus 12, but um, we're also going to be leaning on more of Exodus 12 and the first part of Exodus 13 as we go through the text in this sermon. But I've been told that God is a God of mercy, and so I try to be merciful to our liturgists and not, when we have those longer readings, make them read through all of it. But don't be surprised when we jump to those parts. With that said, let's start by just talking about the meaning of the Passover. When it comes as this original event, there's really two parts of what it is doing in Israel. Before we cover them, though, for the Passover to make sense, we need to get a sense of what's about to happen in that final plague. Here's how God describes that. He says, On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both of people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So God says, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down the firstborn. Again, next week we'll talk about some of the hardness of that particular punishment. But he says it's a judgment on Egypt and on the gods of Egypt in the sense that um, he is showing forth his supremacy to them and in the sense that he's showing that the trust for safety and provision that they have put in those gods is a lie. Um, But it seems important to recognize then in what follows that there's this sense throughout this text that when God comes with that kind of judgment, if something isn't done, then Israel is going to be in trouble too. All the other plagues are pictured as God being up in heaven and kind of sending stuff down. But in this final plague, God actually pictures it as he himself is coming down. And while he threatens this against the Egyptians, the whole undercurrent of the text is that if there isn't something done, 
that when God comes in judgment, Israel is going to be in trouble too. And so God then provides something for Israel to do. Here's what he says to do. He starts in verse 13. He says, tell, or verse 3, sorry. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. So they take a lamb. And it's supposed to be the cream of the crop, a yearling without anything wrong with it. Verse 5, the animal must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. And then they're to slaughter this lamb and mark their houses with it. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And then God says that that blood serves to cover their home so that God's judgment passes over them. In verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this is the first half, like we said, of the meaning of the Passover, that is God covering Israel by the blood of these lambs. Passover is about a covering of blood in, in this original celebration. Well, what do we make of that? First of all, um, the fact that Israel needs any of this should be um, a reminder to us that just because we are in God's people, that does not mean that we in ourselves aren't deserving of judgment. God does not pass over Israel because they're awesome or great or don't deserve it. He passes over them because they've been marked in this way by the blood of the Lamb. But while we deserve God's judgment, the main thrust of Passover is to remind us that God provides a sacrifice. God covers Israel with this blood, and in that covering they are spared in this original Passover. And look, it's important to say this, like, Throughout the Old Testament, as we see these sacrifices, it is not ever because there's some idea that there's like something magic about sheep's blood, right? It's not like, you know, God's coming in judgment, but the blood of a lamb will repel him like garlic does with a vampire or anything like that, all right? Um, If you read the text and pay attention to it, if you read the Old Testament and pay attention to it, it's very clear that what God consistently says is, I'm going to choose to honor this thing, not that it somehow magically has some power in itself. And the reason for that is because that sets that pattern of God providing sacrifices that ultimately point us to Jesus. The New Testament argues that part of what we find in the Old Testament is what we would call types and shadows of what is to come, which is to say the Old Testament gives us symbols and pictures and this language that is meant to point to something beyond itself. Ancient Israel is supposed to look at all of these bloody sacrifices that are just a part of their yearly ritual, and they're supposed to recognize that they need God to cover sin, And more than that, they're supposed to be prepared to expect that God will move in some way to provide a sacrifice for sin. Not that they get all the details, right? That's what's important. It's not like some Old Testament person was supposed to sit down and figure out all the Jesus and detail stuff, but that they're prepared to expect God to move in this way. And then the purpose of those types and shadows is to draw people to recognize their fulfillment in Jesus, The New Testament sees Jesus as the fulfillment of Passover. So, for example, Peter in 1 Peter says this. He says that we have hope before God's judgment, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And if that doesn't sound familiar enough to you, Paul spells it out in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And all of that is following the lead of Jesus. He sits down and institutes the Lord's Supper, this meal we're going to have here in a couple of minutes, and he does that on Passover. It's actually that annual Passover celebration that he's sitting down to. And so he sits down at this meal celebrating God's passing over, and he picks up the bread and says, this is my body, and the cup, and says, this is my blood, and somehow redefines himself as being what Passover is now really about. That's actually why, while the Lord's Supper, in a real sense, is actually a continuation of Passover for us, we don't eat a lamb at it, because Jesus Christ is the lamb, and he has already been sacrificed and is now in heaven. So what does it mean, then, to have Jesus as that sacrificial lamb? What does it mean to have Jesus as that one covering our sins like this? simplest answer is that I think many Christians live in this way where we feel like God is angry at us, where something bad happens and we think, is God punishing me? Is he out to get me? And I want to be careful here because there is a sort of discipline that God does allow in life, and that's facing some of the natural consequences of our wrong behavior in order to help us change, right? There, is, there are situations where God lets us face some of those consequences so that we kind of learn and change, but what God never does is bring judgment on us. If you are in Christ, God is never out to punish you. He's never out to crush you. He never feels angry at you or disappointed in you because of your sin. He always looks at you with love and delight, and the reason for that is because you are covered by the work of Jesus. That in Christ, what happens is that his blood covers all of the guilt we have for our sins. And even more than that, that his righteousness actually covers us so that God looks on us and sees us as righteous. And that means that when we come before the Lord, while he might correct us, it is always as a loving father. He's only seeking our good. And no matter how often we fail, and no matter what we do, when we come to him in repentance and trust, he feels nothing but delight in us because we are covered by that blood. So that's half of what this Passover is about. That Israel's sin is covered by the blood of this lamb as God comes in judgment. The other half, though, and it's the part I think we maybe miss, is that the Passover is also a call to movement. It's a call to be ready to move. So first of all, there isn't just this lamb at the Passover. There's this meal. Um, And in verse 8, it's described as it says, That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. There's a stress throughout the verses that follow that then on how to eat this meal, that they're supposed to make sure they have just enough lamb, don't have any leftovers. Like like it says there, no yeast in the bread because it would take too long to prepare it if you had to wait for it to rise. Or even when it comes to how to eat the meal, God says, this is how you are to eat it, with a cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Supposed to eat this thing fast and be ready to travel. 
Now, there is a reason in the original setting for these instructions. They're anticipating the fact that as Israel eats this Passover meal for the first time, Pharaoh is finally going to be broken and Israel is going to be told to get out of Egypt and to do it as quickly as possible. Um, But at the same time, this is also, as they celebrate it, something that embodies to Israel reality that it's not just that God's passing over them in judgment, but that God is also calling them forward into something. That Israel is, um, in this first meal, the way they celebrate it, um, being reminded of this reality that God's deliverance is a present thing that's meant to call them to move. We discussed a few weeks ago this idea that we, like Israel, are living in the wilderness, in a sense. When we think about our lives in the terms of the Exodus, that we were brought out of Egypt, we're not yet at the promised land in our home, but we're in the wilderness. And one of the realities of that is that we are called to be a people who are ready to move. People like to say that life is a journey, right? <laughs> and things like that. But, but that's true on a deeper level than they often appreciate, which is to say that we every day are called to be journeying. We are being called to be leaving behind the bondage of sin. We are being called to press forward into Jesus Christ. And that means that the Passover meal for Israel was supposed to make them kind of feel uncomfortable, right? That's the thing. When it says eat bitter herbs, right? The Hebrew word for bitter does not mean delicious, right? It means eat bitter herbs. And, you know, an unleavened bread was seen as like less desirable than bread that had raised with yeast. And do it, you know, with your shirt tucked in and a staff in your hand standing by the table ready to go. It's meant to make them feel uncomfortable and ready to move. And that attitude needs to be ours as well when we think about our place in God's story. I think too often, the attitude we develop is simply to get comfortable where we are and wait for this thing to be done. (laughs) That um, we treat this age, we treat the world as sort of like this home that we're just kind of chilling in and there's nothing more to do. But um, we are being called as Christians to always be on the move and always ready to move. Now, I don't mean like move like to another place, right? But I mean that we need to be attentive to the ways each day that God is calling us to step forward in following him and serving others and showing his love. We are called to live with sandals on our feet and a staff in our hands. So that is the Passover in terms of the meaning of the first event. And that's important for us as Christians. But there's something else in this text that is kind of equally important. And that is that God is not just focused on this first Passover in our text. But he's really almost more focused on telling Israel how to remember the Passover. He speaks of remembering the Passover. From the beginning, these verses are really focused on the future. So if you read in Exodus 12:2, when God starts these instructions, he says, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. So it's saying this is reorienting your whole calendar, right? You know, in terms of how it's supposed to affect your life going forward. And it's supposed to be done over and over. So like in verse 14, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So why this, right? Why is the Passover important, not just in its original deliverance from Egypt, but in this thing that Israel did year after year? Really, again, there's two reasons the text offers. 
The first is that it stands as God's seal on his people. God's seal. And I don't mean seal like what you do with a Ziploc bag. I mean in that old sense, like a king would seal a letter to mark it as his. Or you would put your seal, your, you know, your, your crest or whatever on this thing to mark it as yours. A seal was a mark making publicly visible who something belonged to. Making publicly visible who something belonged to. And in chapter 13, God stresses that this is one of the main purposes of the Passover. So in verse 9 of 13, he says, This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Or a few verses later, he says it again. He says, And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt. See, we tend to focus, I think, in our modern era on truth in terms of knowledge. We tend to think about knowledge. Everything is information, right? The Bible tends instead to focus truth in terms of belief, which is to say it isn't just that you say, I intellectually know some information, but rather you really believe this thing to be true in a way that alters how you feel and live. And so you need that knowledge. You need information in order to have belief. But in Scripture, belief is the goal. And knowledge without that belief is useless. I mean, that's tr- in our world, right? There are lots of people who know things. I mean, there are lots of people who know the basic things about Christianity, right? I mean, maybe, maybe not as much sometimes as people think they know, but yeah, they'd be, yeah, Jesus was God and he died for my sins, right? It's easy to have that information. The question, though, that confronts us is always one of belief. It is how our hearts take that for themselves, whether we embrace that in a way that changes us. If we don't have that belief, the knowledge doesn't matter. And because the Bible puts a huge emphasis on belief, it also really emphasizes things that remind us of what is true. Things that take the information and, and like drill it down into our hearts so that we come to believe it. That's, what, that's why we do religious stuff. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, right? But going to church and reading your Bible and going to small groups and all that, those things aren't, in a sense, the point, right? If you do all of those things and you fail to love God and love your neighbors, like you are not, you know, a Christian. But the purpose of those things is to, is to equip us and drill the truths of Christianity down into us so that we are changed in ways that then serve the world. So the purpose of this stuff is that this is the ways that we are driven to actually learn to believe these things. I mean, look, it is, it is not that often in the morning when I sit down to read the Bible that I learn new information, right? I've been doing it for years and years, and I went to school for it and stuff. I mean, it's, it's not like every day I sit down and I'm like, oh, I've never heard this story before. Um, it's not like I regularly hear sermons and I'm like, My mind is blown, like I've never heard that before. But I still need it. Just to be clear, I do learn new things. (laughs) I'm not saying that, right? But I mean, but I still need it, even in those times when I don't. Because because what happens in my heart is like, like I know the information that as a Christian, I'm supposed to love my enemy, right? But then somebody does something wrong to me, and it's like, you know, like, like let's go, man. And the, and, and the reason for that is because what I need is to be reminded again, to learn to believe again in this moment and for this situation that that is true. That's the purpose of a lot of the religious stuff we do in Christianity, 
And that's especially a big part of why um, the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate in a few minutes is something that's important. Like we said earlier, this, in a sense, is the continuation of Passover, and its purpose is meant to drill into our hearts these realities of what God has done, right? That he has delivered us from sin, that he is calling us forward to move forward. These, these religious parts of our lives are meant to be the things that teach us to really believe that. So we need God's seal like that to remind and speak to us that it is true. And then in this text, a special focus of it is that a part of the purpose of the Passover was to teach that to our children, to teach our children about God's work of salvation. Um, It's actually a really big feature of these instructions. First, God stresses the generational purpose of the Passover. He says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. So this is not just about you, but about your children. And then over and over within the instructions of the Passover, he talks about how to discuss it with your kids. So in chapter 12, starting in 26, he says, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Or in chapter 13, on that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Or a little later, in days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt, and that is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Which is to say, with each of the parts of this Passover festival, Israel isn't just instructed what to do, but they're specifically told, here's what you tell your kids about what's happening here. To talk about that, first we need to back up for a minute and talk about a misconception people have, I think, about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think people often have this idea that in the Old Testament, religion was external, and now because of Jesus in the New Testament, it is internal. That in the Old Testament, they think it was external. It was about these outward rituals and ceremonies, and Israel was just this thing you were born into, and then you were cool with God. And then we think that in the New Testament now, it's internal, and so none of those rituals or outward things matter, and all that matters is what you believe in your heart. That is actually wrong in both directions. (laughs) So in the Old Testament, religion was both outward and inward. It was both external and internal. It is true that there are rituals and outward things that Israel is called to do, but they're consistently called to do them in order to have a change in their heart. People were always saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, They didn't know the name of Jesus, but it was their faith, not outward stuff that saved them. If you were with us during Romans, Paul spends a lot of time saying that. Abraham was saved by faith. People have always been saved by faith, right? So what happens in the Old Testament is it says we have these external things, and they matter, but they matter because they're supposed to then teach us and change us in our hearts, right? They're supposed to teach us to believe this from the heart. And the prophets in the Old Testament say that that's why when Israel goes astray, that's because there's a faithful remnant that is true Israel, and all the other people are only doing it externally. And then the same thing is true in the New Testament. There are external and internal elements of what we're called to do too. 
that there's these external things that we do, like gather for worship, right? Come to the Lord's Supper and baptism and, and these other things like that. But like we said earlier, the purpose of those things is to lead to an internal change. So the external stuff does still matter, but it's the internal stuff in both Testaments that's the point. How does that shape, then, how we think about this text and children? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to say, we're going to talk about kids, but I'm not just talking to you if you're a parent, all right? Obviously, it's going to apply to you if you're a parent. But um, in the first place, if you're like a grandparent or something like that to a kid, the Bible's full of people who are godly examples like that. But more than that, the church is God's household, and all of us have responsibility for the children in our midst. If you've been here when we baptize an infant or a young child, um, we have the parents take these vows where they dedicate themselves to raise them in a way that seeks to you know, bring them to know God. And then all of us, the whole congregation, is supposed to take this vow as well. Here it is. It says, Do you, the members of this congregation, acting for yourselves and in behalf of the whole body of Christ, assume responsibility with these parents for the spiritual nurture of this child? And do you commit yourself to set a godly example before this child and to provide as far as you are able all that is necessary to the end that this child may one day confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? And I say that just to say if you're a part of Kish or if if you're just a Christian, right? Even if you've never said those vows because that's what the Bible calls us to do. We all need to take ownership for the children that the Lord has placed us in relationship with. With that said, Let's talk about how the pattern for Passover affects how we think about raising kids. Um, And to do that, I want to first give you two pictures. This will make sense in a minute, but two pictures that I want you to have in your head. The first is a picture of water irrigating a field. And I don't mean like with pivots in the, the way you guys now do it, but like old, you know, irrigation canals and stuff like that. Jesus regularly uses water as an image of spiritual life in the Bible, right? And um, what I want to suggest to you is that when it comes to our children's spiritual life, you cannot make the water happen, right? That's up to God and the Holy Spirit. You can't make it rain. But what you can do is prepare your children to be fields so that when the rain falls, it will flow in a way that is easy and builds them up and that will naturally benefit it. We can dig the ditches, Carve out the channels so that when the water comes, they will be prepared for it. Or a second picture, that of dancing. I have a friend who is a dancer who's trained in it and teaches it. And dancing in its kind of deep sense, when you see someone like her do it, it flows up from the heart, right? And it just, it it flows out of the music and it's this beautiful and natural thing. It's a lot more than just a bunch of like movements that I might go through, right? But... Um, they tell me that um, in order to learn to dance, you can't do it without, you can't do it well, right, without first learning those movements. And so again, you can't make your kid dance, right? You can't make them feel the music down in your heart, but you absolutely can teach them the movements so that they're prepared as the music plays to be able to dance to it well. Now let's take those pictures and talk about what that means practically. First, let me just suggest, um, there's, I want to just name this, right? The way that I think a lot of evangelicals are trained to think about parenting is like this. I think we're trained, we, we're trained to think that our job is to raise our kids to be moral, and then hopefully someday they'll become Christians, 
All right? I think that's what people get, that we raise our kids to be moral, and then hopefully, like, Jordan will talk with them, or they'll go to camp, or they'll go to college and be in a ministry, or something like that, and then someday they'll become Christians, all right? Now, it is true that we should try to teach our kids morality. Don't, that's not the part that, that I'm going to disagree with exactly. But, um, but our call as Christians needs to be to raise our children to be followers of Jesus, and that means more and sometimes even different things than just raising our kids to be sort of good people. First of all, it means that we need to be careful in terms of how we approach morality with kids to make sure that we don't motivate them in unchristian ways. Guilt and shame and fear are all actually really effective ways in the short term of getting people to do what you want. <laughs> they, they work, right? But the problem is that, um, that if they're actually damaging to the gospel of Christ, right? Jesus comes and says, obey me, even though your sins are covered, and even though there is no shame and no condemnation, and you have nothing to be afraid of. He comes and says, obey me, out of love and joy and an experience of my grace. And so if we just try to guilt and shame our kids into obedience, we're actually teaching them um, a wrong way of obeying. And more than that, and this is really where I think Passover meets us. It means as we're Christians, trying to raise our children as Christians, that we should raise them in the patterns of Christianity. One of the biggest jobs we have is to teach them things like how to pray, how to read the Bible, to teach them when they do wrong things, not just to like apologize to you, but to repent to Jesus, and then to rejoice in the fact that they're forgiven. And we need to teach them to do the things that Jesus calls them to do. So like, like it's natural for Christian parents to want good Christian friends for our kids, and we should certainly seek that. But we should also seek the, for them to have friendships where they can minister to people, right? And share the good news of Jesus with people who, who need him. Or... Um, or that we should have our kids live like members of the church. This is something I've been reflecting on that I don't know that I've even always done a good job of to not just have them come and participate in the programs and stuff, but to say, like, what are your gifts and how can you serve the body of Christ? How can you step forward in doing that? We need to do that for our kids. Um, and then we particularly need to be doing that in terms of habits that drill the truths of Christianity down into them. Remember, that was what we said, that sealing purposes. Um, the text here, when you actually think about what's happening, it's this ritual rehearsing of the truth. Like, the way it's written, most people think, it's not just that it's like, just in case your kids have any questions, here's what to say, right? They think that this is actually a sort of liturgy that Israel was meant to go through every year, that every year they would have the children say, you know, parents, why do we do this thing? And then it says, parents, you're supposed to respond and tell this to your children. There's real power in those sort of rituals and liturgies with our kids. Praying the Lord's Prayer with them. Making a point to sit down and have discussions about specific things. I don't just mean like when they ask questions, although with, with kids sometimes they just ask, ask and ask. But you know, if they're not asking, to make a point to talk to them about it. I have a friend recently who told me that every morning they, after breakfast, they say the Apostles' Creed together <laughs> with their kids, right? Um... There's real power in doing those things. Or one more practical suggestion. Um, in the history of the church, one of the ways that a lot of people did this was through what are called catechisms, 
which are sets of questions and answers that are meant to teach the core beliefs of faith. And it was common, even in like our, my grandparents' generation, you can do the translation however that fits for you, but um, like on Sunday afternoons, kids would sit and memorize catechism or that they would do it each day with their parents. Um, it's something Elizabeth and I very imperfectly, I want to say, because I'm not going to hold us up as a perfect model, but very imperfectly, we've been tr- started trying to do that with our kids, to work through what's called the New City Catechism. And um, look, I'm about to use it, my, one of my kids as an example for this. Don't hear this as me saying I'm a great parent. This was just a delightful moment of seeing how this works, right? But a little while back, um, in Sunday school, apparently, um, Rebecca was asked, you know, who is God? Does anyone know who God is, right? And I, I don't think that they were expecting any response, probably, but apparently I heard from the teacher what she said was, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Now listen to me, my daughter does not understand that, right? (laughs) Like, it is not the case that she knows what that means, right? Um, But the the point is, like, by training her in that pattern, like, you can dance to that, right? (laughs) Like, that's the sort of thing that as you set those patterns in your life, if the Lord chooses to move in her in those ways that, you know, that draw her to Christ, like, there are resources there, and there, there are channels that are dug there that can equip her. Just to note, if that particularly is something you're interested in, I printed off some copies of the New City Catechism that we use with our kids, and they're back on the book table. You're welcome to grab that. But again, my point in that is not to make us feel like, oh, there's just this one solution. My point is to say, like, that is our goal with our children, our grandchildren, our other kids that are in our lives, to be setting those patterns so that they're equipped to see the Lord moving. Um, And then one last note on all of that when we think about our kids. I have been stressing that our kids have to claim it for themselves, and that really is true. You cannot guarantee that your kid's going to follow Jesus, and just because they don't, or because they haven't yet, which is maybe an even more important thing for parents to remember, um, that does not mean that you failed as a parent. But in saying that, I don't want to remove the reality, too, that God really does promise to bless faithfulness in this area. That in raising and praying for our children, while we are not guaranteeing or forcing the Lord to move in a certain way, we are putting, like we're putting them right in the way of the Holy Spirit's movement. So there is a real hopefulness we should have for our children as we seek to raise them in that too. Uh, Peter says it at the end of the Pentecost sermon as he's calling people to become Christians. He says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And we should have a hopefulness about that. So that's those two levels of the Pentecost. The thing in itself and also, or the Passover, sorry. The thing in itself and then what it means for us to remember the thing. And as I think about what it looks like then for us to live that out, um, rather than just ruminating at it in the abstract, I think the natural thing for us to do is to move to the Lord's table, which is in a real sense the celebration of that. So as we do that, would you join me in professing the Apostles' Creed, which is what we do to be prepared um, and mark ourselves as those people, and then let's come to the table and we'll talk a little bit more. <clears throat>